Good morning, dear friends. Greetings in Jesus. Turn with me, please, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 2. And as always, not quite positive why, but somebody always wants me to pray in Hebrew, anything to oblige. Sometimes when I'm in California, people want me to pray in Spanish. ¿Por qué no? Bienvenidos en nuestros hermanos hermanos en Cristo de México también, pero hoy hebreo. Today it will be Hebrew. Avino Marqueno, anakta modim la habis recorda brochotcha, anakta cabana mimha. Ana Adonai, tishpokru gachecha alenu, vetiftak et enaim chelano, letaferet shelverecha. Beshemcha hamashiach Yeshua, Adonenu go alenu, vetzidkatenu. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good thing. Pour your spirit upon us now, Lord God, as we open your word and speak to us by your spirit through your word. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the one who saved us, in his name we pray. Amen. In Hebrew, we call the book of Leviticus, and Yahweh called, or and God called. Read with me, please, to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall offer it up <coughs> in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Now when you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Now if your offering is a grain offering, Made in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring in the grain offering, which is made of these things, to the Lord, it shall be presented to the Lord, and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest then shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion, and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, the thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you shall bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering to the Lord by fire. As an offering of the first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all of your offerings you shall offer salt. Also, if you bring a grain offering... Of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain, roasted in the fire, grits of new growth, for the grain offering of your early ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up in smoke its memorial portion, a portion of its grits with its oil and its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. Most Christians would have some kind of a sense that the Animal sacrifices are pictures or types or shadows of Jesus. The altar, of course, what we call in Hebrew mesabeach, is a picture of the cross where sin was atoned for, where the sacrifices were made. And as the Catholics say in the Vulgate, Agnus Dei Quitolus Pecatumundi, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Most people would know that Jesus 
is prefigured by the lamb. It had to be a lamb without spot or blemish because to God one man without sin is worth more than all the men with sin. People can understand something about the Paschal lamb. Or perhaps the Yom Kippur scapegoats were separated from God because of our sin. But on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you have at one minute. The separation is closed. We become at one with our Maker again. Although we were separated by sin because of the atonement of Jesus, we become reunited with him. This was Yom Kippur, from the Hebrew word kapora. If there was real faith and real repentance on the Day of Atonement, the one day a year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the blood of the goats would make kapora. It would temporarily cover the sin of the people until the Messiah came and removed them. It was a shadow of Jesus. Actually, there would be two goats called the Sa'el Ezazel. The high priest would lay his hands on the goats and impart the sins of the people onto the goats in figure or in symbol. They would take the goats through the streets of Jerusalem in a parade and people would spit on them, throw stones at them, hit them with sticks and kick them and curse them for their sin. The same as Jesus was paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. Then the goats would be taken outside of the city, and one would be sacrificed, and one would be released. One would die so the other could live. Again, a picture of Christ. These are animal sacrifices. But here we have the grain offerings. John chapter 6 tells us something about the bread. It corresponds, both in the Jewish Talmud and in the New Testament, to the flesh of the Lamb. If you've seen matzah, and some churches rightly use matzah, it's better to use matzah when you take the Lord's Supper. Matzah is unleavened bread. It is striped and it is pierced, corresponding to the flesh of the lamb. By his stripes we are healed. He is pierced through for our transgressions. Jews have to use matzah that is striped and pierced for the Passover. <clears throat> but it also corresponds to the word of God. Jesus is God and he is the word. In Greek in the New Testament, if you were to read it in Greek, in the beginning was the word, but in verse 14, the word, the logos, became sarx, flesh. Hence we have this idea of the bread, the body of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, and the word of God. It's like a hypostatic relationship. When we understand this, we see the background of this grain offering. It's a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. Unless we understand the Jewishness of the Gospel, and unless we understand Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, we will only have a very elementary understanding of the New Testament. You'll never go from arithmetic to calculus unless you understand how the New Testament fulfills the Old. Novum Testamentum and Vetere Latet, if you like Latin, the New is in the Old concealed, the Old is in the New revealed. And so it goes, the grain was offered three ways. On an open fire, in a skillet, and in an oven. Why? We are tripartite beings. We are three-dimensional men and women. Paul the Apostle tells us, Know ye not your temples of the Holy Spirit. The temple was a box in a box in a box. A box in a box in a box. The outer court of the temple corresponds to our physical body. Everyone could see it. In Greek, soma. In Hebrew, guf. 
But then there's the holy place. That corresponds to our soul, our consciousness, our mind, our emotions, our intellect. Hebrew, God breathed on Adam, he became a living soul. It's onomatopoeia, you call it in English. Nefesh. Nefesh. Breath. Nefesh. Soul, nefesh. Greek, it is psuche. We get the word psychology. That's the soul. But then there's the holy of holies. The Kodesh Kodeshim in Hebrew, the Sanctum Sanctorum. This is the spirit, the innermost man or woman where God's spirit dwells. Okay? In Greek, this would be called pneuma, as in pneumonia or pneumatic drill. Pneuma. In Hebrew, ruach, ruach. And the Holy Spirit, who dwells in our spirit, is called Haruach HaKodesh, the spirit of holiness, literally. Okay. We are three-dimensional, because God is triune, and we're imaginary dei beings, made in his image and likeness. We are three-dimensional. Secular psychology says we're two-dimensional. They confuse the spirit with the soul. They think we're simply better apes with better DNA, that's all. We're better species of primate, that's all. Secular psychology is predicated on the presupposition that it's all the mind and the body. The Bible says we are three-dimensional. This is the difference between secular psychology and biblical psychology. Biblical psychology is the book of Proverbs. Forget about Freud, forget about Jung, forget about that rubbish. It is Proverbs. If you want to understand human behavior, read Proverbs. God breathed on Adam. Adam became a living soul. Mental illness never begins in the mind. It either begins in the body or in the spirit. If somebody is behaviorally dysfunctional, there's not something wrong with them psychologically. There's either something wrong with them organically, chemically, or there's something wrong with them spiritually or both. Psychology is pseudoscience. As far as Christian psychology, it is an oxymoron. Emphasize the moron. Don't believe that stuff. Okay. We're three-dimensional. Now, you understand this. In demonic oppression, for instance, God built a hedge around Job and told Satan this far, no further. When somebody is oppressed by a demon, there can be an invasion of the body, like St. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, or an oppression of the mind. But Satan cannot touch the new creation. In demonic possession, it's different. Instead of the Holy Spirit in someone's spirit, there's a demon. Okay? Not one time, not one place in the Bible is a demon ever cast out of a saved Christian. The apostles never taught it. They never taught it. When somebody is demonically oppressed, the word in the Bible is therapeo, healed. Christians can be demonically oppressed and healed of the oppression. But when somebody is possessed, it's something completely different. It is cast out. Ekbalo, we get the word ballistic. Literally, to shoot out. That's never used in connection with the saved Christian. Next time you see a church with a deliverance service, do what I do. Realizing the apostles and Jesus never taught any such thing. 
pick up the phone and say, you have deliverance service this evening? They say yes. Tell them, send over two cheeseburgers with raw onions. Don't forget the coleslaw. <laughs> we are three-dimensional. Not two. Psychology says we're two. But when we understand the three-dimensional or the tripartite nature of man, we understand why Jesus took our sin and why the grain had to be offered on the fire, in the skillet, and in the oven. Sin has affected us spiritually, psychologically, and physically. We're separated from God physically, psychologically, and spiritually because of our sin. Adam was not physically separated from God. God walked in the garden. That was a Christophany. It was Jesus. Adam had communion with God. Now we're separated. Okay. But in atonement, this unification comes back through Jesus. The way it happens is this. He takes our sin to give us his righteousness. But he had to pay for our sin in body, in soul, and in spirit. When the grain was burned on an open fire... It's being physically consumed was conspicuous, obvious to everybody. Everybody could see the grain being burned up. And so when the Lord Jesus hung on the cross in my place and in your place, his physical torture was evident to everyone. He was hanging there publicly, nearly naked, being tortured by the Romans. I recall back in the 1980s, I read a book when the Turin Shroud was being investigated. It was debunked, but it was investigated by various scientists, forensic scientists and so forth. And one of the experiments they did was in France. They crucified cadavers, dead bodies kept alive, kept metabolizing on artificial life support. And they crucified these cadavers in France, and then they did autopsies on them. And the pathologist said, somebody being crucified this way, medically, they would die of a combination of suffocation and hypervolemic shock. It would be a very cruel way to kill somebody. Even by modern standards, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more cruel way to torture somebody to death. Forget about the Mel Gibson film. That was nonsense. The nail did not go through the metacarpal. It went through the radius. He put the nail through the metacarpal because he uh, was Catholic and he wanted to reinforce the Roman Catholic superstition of the stigmata. But we know from forensic pathology it would have went through the radius. Okay. Jesus suffered in body. He was physically tortured. Everyone could see it. So the grain being consumed on the open fire was visible to everyone. But then the grain was burned in a pan or a skillet. Now when you read Leviticus, it was gold, but on the end of a long pole. And the Levitical priest would hold it like this over the fire and go like this. Even he couldn't see it. When someone is suffering psychologically, when they're being tormented emotionally, Maybe someone's suffering clinical depression. Maybe someone is demonically oppressed. Maybe someone is bereaved. Whatever. Other people can see some of what is happening. But you can't see all of what that person's experiencing. The people could see at the distance some of what was happening in the skillet. But even the high priest couldn't see all of it. It was on the end of a pole. Only he who looks down from above could see the whole thing. Only God can understand fully what somebody's going through when they're suffering emotionally, psychologically. God sees the whole thing. Other people can only see some of what's happening. God can see all of what's happening. So Jesus suffered in body, but he suffered in soul. And the word is not just suffer. On the Day of Atonement, the term in Hebrew, you shall torture, literally torture or torment. It was torment. 
But the third way the grain was offered was in the oven, what we call in Hebrew, betokatanor. It was not visible to anyone. You couldn't see any of it. The grain consumed in the oven corresponds to the spiritual torture of Jesus. We cannot minimize the effect of a Roman crucifixion. It was absolutely gruesome. The Bible also speaks of the travail of his soul, the psychological, emotional anguish Jesus went through. You can't minimize that either. But the deepest aspect of the atonement when he took our sin was what happened in the oven. Fellowship with his father was severed. Something happened within the eternal triunity of the Godhead when God took our sin and put it on his son and took his son's righteousness to put it on us, God could not look upon sin and something happened within the content, in the eternal triunity of the Godhead. We can never understand this, this side of eternity. But that was the worst aspect of Jesus' suffering when he was cut off from fellowship with the Father. Now this happened on the cross. On the cross he got the victory. He said, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We need to understand this. There was a cult called Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific. Much the same as psychology is pseudoscience. Psychology is not even real science. It's non-quantitative. And it's not real theology. It's basically the religion of man. However, the Christian science cult, they say illness is an illusion. Old age is an illusion. Death is an illusion. And the founder of this, Mary Baker Eddy, influenced some early Pentecostals who went into heresy. People like William Branham and someone called E.W. Kenyon. They came up with this crazy idea by looking at a mistranslation in the King James of hell, of Hades as hell. When Jesus died, he went to the Old Testament saints in Sheol, in Hades, in the netherworld, and revealed himself to the Old Testament saints. He did not go to hell as in the lake of fire. But they said, no, he did, and he became of one nature with Satan. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan got the victory on the cross, and Jesus went to hell as one nature with Satan. And he was tortured three days and three nights in hell, and Jesus had to be born again in hell. He won the victory in hell. Then he rose from the dead. This was the belief of Kenyon, and this was the belief of uh, Branham and people like this. And they influenced later people, particularly in America and South Africa, called William, uh, called uh, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer. And the first edition of her first book, Joyce Meyer wrote, unless you believe Jesus went to hell, you can't go to heaven. The Bible says... It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He got the victory over sin on the cross. They deny this. They say he had to go to hell. This is a complete rejection of the true gospel. Now, because the cross of Jesus is not their view of salvation, neither is the cross of Jesus their view of the Christian life. Instead of pick up your cross and follow me, Instead of cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown, it's you're a king's kid. Blab it and grab it. God wants you rich. You don't have to suffer. Name it and claim it. They have a crossless gospel, so they have a crossless discipleship. Their God becomes mammon. They don't teach faith in Jesus. They teach faith in faith. They may know how to camouflage it, but if you look at their core beliefs, it comes from Christian science. That whole thing, my body's lying to me. <laughs> That's where they get it. 
it comes from an occult origin. However, the New Testament and the Old Testament teach something different. Jesus suffered in body, mind, and spirit. He got the victory on the cross. When he suffered in body, it was like the grain being consumed on the open fire. Suffering in soul, in the skillet, in the oven, when fellowship with his father was severed on the cross. But the victory was in the cross and in the resurrection. He did not go to hell. He went to Sheol, to Hades, to reveal himself to the descendants of Abraham, who were faithful under the law, and so forth. And so, the grain had to be offered three ways. Because sin affected all three. But as we just read here, there's more to it than that. The grain had to have incense on it. Incense speaks of the priestly offering. Remember when the Magi came, they bought Jesus gold because he'd be a king. They bought him myrrh because he would die. But incense because he would be a priest. And the Song of Solomon, when the bridegroom goes to die for the bride, he says, I will go to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. There was incense on the matzah, the unleavened bread. But there was also oil, shemen. This speaks of anointing. The people who speak of anointing the most today seem to be the ones who understand at least. Jesus is Hamashiach, the anointed one. The anointed one. Jesus said, she has anointed me for burial. The real proof of an anointing is not a Mercedes Benz. The real proof of anointing is a crucified life. Before Jesus was anointed for dominion and power, he was anointed for burial. When Paul spoke of his gifting, as it were, his anointing as an apostle in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, before he spoke of Nassim Veniflaot, signs and wonders and miracles, he first spoke of being shipwrecked, being abandoned, being flogged, being rejected, being arrested. He spoke of a crucified life. That is the proof of anointing. Secondly, the incense. Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 30. Verse 30. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy and shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it or put it on any layman shall be cut off from his people. The anointing is holy. Holy means set apart. In Hebrew, mekudesh. It is the same word for marrying somebody. A Jewish wedding is different than a Christian wedding. There's not 16 wives, four richer, four poorer, four better, or four worse. There's only one. And you stand under a banner. His banner under me is love, called the, over me is love, called the hoopah from the Song of Solomon. And you take the ring and you say to your bride, Ani With this ring I wed thee according to the laws of Moses and Israel. And then you step on a wine glass. Then you've had it, brother. But anyway, 
I set you apart. God has set me apart to you. God has set you apart to me. What God has joined together, whom God has set apart to each other, let no man put asunder. Well, Christians wouldn't practice wife swapping. It would be immoral. God even hates divorce. Christians don't believe in adultery. It's immoral. Why? Because this person is set apart to that person. This man is set apart to this woman. This woman is set apart to this man. They are set apart. They are made kudesh. So is someone's anointing, Mekudesh. The same as it would be an immoral or an abomination to, to, to commit adultery. So it would be an abomination to try to transfer an anointing. It's not ours to transfer. When Elijah asked for Elijah, Elisha asked for Elijah's mantle, Elijah said, I can't give that to you. Wait to see if it falls when I'm raptured in the chariot. If God gives it to you, you can do it. In the book of Acts chapter 13... The Holy Spirit said, set out from, apart from me. Set apart. Make Udesh. Sanctify. Separate. Barnabas and Saul. Then the church laid hands on them. The church can't ordain a minister. Ministers are not ministers of the church. They're ministers of the Lord. Only God can ordain a minister. You cannot transfer an anointing. Don't put it on somebody else. It's not yours to give away. Every Christian is a minister. Every Christian has a ministry, but it is holy unto you. The same as the man or woman you're married to is holy unto you, the ministry God has called you to is holy unto you. It's not something we can give away. It's an abomination if you try to put it on somebody else. But then we read something else about the matzah here in chapter 30, verse 34. They also put on it incense. Take for yourself... Spices, stockte, ankia, and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal portion of each, and with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. Salt, speaking of that which preserves, pure, no mixture. A catharsis in Greek. And holy, set apart by God, mekudesh. You shall beat some of it very fine and put a portion of it before the testimony. In the tent of meeting where I will meet with you, it shall be most holy unto you. Not just holy, but most holy. Then, the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportion for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Be careful of those who use worship to perfume themselves. Something has happened in recent years. I live mainly in England and in Israel, even though I was born in America. But I was very happy visiting the States about a year or a year and a half ago when I first heard a song in a Calvary chapel. I'm going back to the heart of worship. It's about you, Lord. Forgive us for the mess we made of it, in effect. Words to that effect. Forget the exact lyrics. But that song is exactly right. They were singing in that particular Calvary Chapel. I think it was on the East Coast. I'm not sure. We've turned worship into the worship of worship. It's become entertainment. If you go to Nashville, Tennessee, you will find Christian pop charts. You will find Christian pop stars. You will find what used to be a music ministry is now a music industry. It's become entertainment. They are perfuming themselves. Do you know how many people who are worship leaders in big churches are failed pop stars? They couldn't make it in the secular music industry, so now they're going to use their lack of talent for the Lord? (laughs) 
It's hype. It's entertainment. It preys on people's emotion. 7-Eleven choruses. People singing the same seven words 11 times. You know how many people are getting sucked into crazy unbiblical doctrines by singing the same thing over and over again? They're getting their doctrine from singing choruses mindlessly instead of studying the Word of God. Jesus warned about this heaping up for empty phrases. This is called a mantra. It comes from Hinduism. It is not biblical. It's in the emergent church big time, but it's not in the Bible. It's a mantra. It comes from mysticism. It's Hinduistic. They're perfuming themselves. They psychologically and spiritually manipulate people and predispose them to all kinds of things by these mesmerizing, mesmerizing, repetitive singing mindlessly of not knowing what they're even singing. Often singing lyrics that are not even biblical. There is no doxology without theology. Jesus said the Father wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. If the words are not biblical, it's not real worship. We're warned about this. They are perfuming themselves. They're entertainers. It's the worship of worship. This is a big problem. So, there was incense and there was oil on the grain. True worship, true anointing. But then, we read, there could be no leaven and there could be no honey. The portion that went to the priest was also not just holy, but most holy. Every Christian is a minister, but every Christian is not in full-time ministry. What you give to missions, or to the support of a pastoral ministry, is not just holy, it's most holy. You're not giving it to that missionary or that pastor, you're giving it to the Lord. You're giving it to the Lord. You're helping support a missionary in India, someone running, our ministry runs off into just AIDS babies in Africa. The people who support our ministry, they're not giving us money, they're giving us some of themselves. They're saying, I'm a dentist, I'm an automobile mechanic, I'm a housewife, I can't go to Africa and take care of dying children with AIDS, you go on my behalf. That money is most holy. It's not given to us, it's not given to our missionaries, it's not even given to the AIDS children, it's given to the Lord. It's most holy. People who are in paid ministry, or called to study to show themselves approved. You see people up every week telling anecdotes and babbling in one line of hype after another. This church, you don't see it that much in Calvary chapels, but there are churches where that's what they get every week. Anecdotes, stories, a few verses out of context. The Bible warns about this. It says, study to show yourself approved. If these guys are not studying the word of God, God does not approve of them. Either should we, and we should certainly not pay them. Let them go out and get an honest job like you do. Let them go out and earn an honest living. They're prostituting the word of God to line their own pockets, except that they're not even preaching the real word of God. They're not rightly dividing it. It's got to be done biblically. What's given to the priest is most holy. And so we have the grain now. Salt, incense, oil. But no honey, no leaven. Why could there be no leaven in the matzah, unleavened bread? My family are Jewish Israelis, and we celebrate the Passover. We do something called the Bedichat Chametz. You clean all the leaven out of the house. Anything, biscuit, cupcakes, bread, anything with leaven has to go out before you take the, eat the Passover. 
And so we need to purge the leaven before we take the Lord's Supper. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 5 to understand why there's no leaven. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the entire lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you were in fact unleavened. For the Messiah, our Passover, who has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with the old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Being sincere is not good enough. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. There must be truth. I once saw a film of a Buddhist monk poured kerosene over his head and lit a match. He was about the most sincere man I ever saw in my life. Being sincere isn't good enough. Sincerity and truth. You can be sincere about something that's false. No. No leaven. The leaven contributes absolutely nothing to the nutritional value of the bread. It simply puffs up. Your boasting is not good, Paul says. What was Satan's first sin? Isaiah 14. He wanted to be God. Pride. What was man's first sin? Genesis 3. Wanted to be God. Pride. Pride is the seminal sin. It was Satan's first sin. It was man's first sin. Pride, the seminal sin, is the sin that gives rise to other sin. You see a person with a problem with unrighteous anger, under that is pride. You see a person with a problem with uncontrolled lust, under that lust is pride. You see a person with a problem with greed, under that greed is pride. Pride is the sin that gives rise to other sin. Now none of us have anything to be proud of except for Jesus, what he did for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Of him we have something to be very proud of. But nothing else. Paul says we have nothing that we haven't received. Not our good looks, not our education, not our professions, not our ministries, and certainly not our salvation. We have nothing that we haven't received. We have nothing to be proud of except Jesus. But he who was God, who became a man with everything to be proud of, he had no pride. We with nothing to be proud of because of our sin battle with pride every day. He had no pride. There was no leaven in the matzah. No leaven. But it goes beyond that. Sincerity and truth. Jesus, Yeshua, said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You see false doctrine. You're looking at spiritual pride. Puffs up. Again, I'm only quoting what they said. The money preachers on TV said Satan got the victory on the cross. They said it. I'm only quoting them. Joyce Meyer wrote it in her book. I'm only quoting what she wrote. How dare you say that about Sister Joyce? I didn't. She said it. Today, the big lie, the latest, the emergent church. Postmodernism. There's no objective truth. There's no propositional truth, says its leaders, people like Brian McLaren, that's what they say. The church must decide if we should ordain homosexuals or or sanctify same-sex marriages. That's what this guy is saying. Well, the Bible says the gospel is predicated on the presupposition of propositional truth. If Christ is not risen, we're the most foolish of all people. 
if the New Testament is not true in its historicity, if Christ has not risen from the dead as an objective historical fact, we are stupid people for being here today. We should be out with the world having a good time, Paul says. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we'll be buried. We're absolute jerks for being here today, unless it is propositionally true that Christ has risen after taking our sin. The American church denies this. Thank God Chuck Smith has taken the stand he has taken and drawn the line and said, not in Calvary Chapel, get it out of here. Now the door into this stuff is, of course, purpose-driven. Sheep are led, they are not driven. Purpose-driven is marketing and psychology. It is not biblical. But what's the basis of these crazy things? Leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of it. Beware. There was no false doctrine in the ministry of Jesus. He had no leaven. But neither could there be honey. There could be no honey on the matzah. Honey in biblical typology speaks of the things for which we have natural human affection. Again, we are psychological beings as well as physical and spiritual ones. There is a natural human need for affection. Turn with me, please, to understand this to the book of Proverbs, God's book of psychology, not James Dobson's, God's, chapter 24. Sorry for pointing it out, but I must again agree with Chuck Smith and Brian Broderson. I was glad that they kicked that stuff off K-Wave. I was glad they got rid of that stuff off K-Wave. Chuck and Brian were right to do it. Turn with me, please, to Proverbs. Chapter 24. Verse 13. My son, eat honey, it is good. Yes, honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. People need affection. You know, the Bible speaks substantially more, substantially more about a father's love than it does a mother's love. A father is, and a husband is to be the representation of Christ's love to the church, and God as a father is love for his children. Speaks probably nearly three times as much about a father's love as it does a mother's love. Yet there are fathers, even Christian fathers, I'm sorry to say, that have never hugged their children. You'll damage that kid. People need a certain amount of honey. But let's go further in the book of Proverbs. Turn to chapter 25. Verse 16. Have you found honey? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomit it. Even girls hate mushy poetry. Too much will make you sick. Oh, don't smack little Henry. Henry's a good boy. Oh, don't correct little Debbie. She's a nice girl. Until the highway patrol comes to the door at 3.30 in the morning, and they're no longer little, and they're no longer nice. You should have corrected little Henry and little Debbie when they were six, seven, eight, nine. Now it's too late. Too much honey. The parents who will damage their children the most, spiritually and psychologically, ones who are overly permissive and overly strict. The ones who give too much honey and the ones who don't give enough. Eat what you need, but not too much. One day we will enter a land flowing with milk and honey. Right now, we're in the promised land. Now you have to understand this biblically. Honey. 
You know in Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, he had to eat the scroll? And in Revelation chapter 10, it was sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach? In Hebrew, the word of God is called Dvar. Logos in Greek, Dvar in Hebrew. Dvar Adonai. Dvar. The word for honey is the word for bee. Bzz, bumblebee. Dvora. Bee. Girl's name, Deborah in Hebrew, means bee. Dvora. Bees make honey. Dvash. Honey. Honey. Okay. Dvar, dvora, dvar is the same root in Hebrew. It's called the shoresh, a root. Words with the same root have a common etymological meaning in Hebrew. Dvar, the word of God, has the same root as the bee that makes the honey. Remember, he ate the word, ate the scroll. It was sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. The word of God is always sweet in the mouth, bitter in the gut. Mm, wasn't that an encouraging sermon? Mm, wasn't that an interesting Bible study? Ugh, now I've got to put it into practical operation in my life. <laughs> when they ate the manna, it was honey-coated. But it wasn't all honey. One day we'll enter the land of milk and honey. One day we'll be in heaven, everything will be sweet. Right now, we're sojourning in the wilderness on our way to get there. We need a certain amount of honey, but not a steady diet of nothing but honey. Not too much honey. Be careful of people who think with their emotions. Human intellect, functions of the soul, like intellect. Human intellect, good servant. So, you're a talented musician? Yes, God can use that. So, you're a, a medical professional. Oh, there's countries that are let in a doctor or a nurse, but they won't allow one a missionary and evangelist. Functions of the soul? Intellect. Good servant. Bad master. Emotion? Affection? Compassion? Also a good servant, a deadly, lethal, cruel master. The functions of the soul are good servants, bad masters. Emotion even being a crueler master than intellect. Good servants, bad masters. They must be subordinated to our spirit, which is in communion with the Holy Spirit, to be effective. Just because you can play piano doesn't make you a worship leader. That intellectual ability must be controlled by your spirit that is in communion with the Holy Spirit before you can do it under the anointing of the Spirit. That's the way it is. Honey speaks of affection. There's more girls who believe the gospel than there are boys in this country. So as a young guy in New York, my native New York, as you can tell by my Robert De Niro Bugs Bunny accent, I became a Christian. And I knew what you did with girls before you were a Christian, but I had no idea what you did with girls after you became a Christian because it was a sin. To me, the only thing about getting married that was any good was sex wouldn't be a sin, but that was not a good enough reason to go jump off the Empire State Building without a parachute. And so even ugly guys like me could get good-looking girlfriends if you went to a church. 
That wasn't the only reason to get saved, but it was a fringe benefit. <laughs> and there was this one girl, a nice Jewish girl, very attractive. She'd been a, a, a dancer, a professional dancer on Broadway, and she became a Christian. You guys laugh at me. Hey, listen. I wasn't always a, a middle-aged, overweight dude. <laughs> one time I was a young guy. I had three extremely attractive young ladies pounding on my door for over 45 minutes. I mean, these were really foxy chicks that were pounding on my door for over three quarters of an hour. I still wouldn't let them out. But anyway. <laughs> this one girl really liked me. She was pretty. But I knew I was in trouble one day because she called me up and she said, Hello, honey. I immediately immigrated to Israel. Later, I married an Israeli girl. She doesn't call me honey. I'll tell you what she calls me later. But anyways, <laughs> honey speaks of affection. Jonathan Edwards wrote his sermon on religious affections. Be careful of people who confuse feeling with spirituality, who confuse emotion with spirituality. Let's look at one more verse about this honey in chapter 25, verse 27. It's not good to eat much honey. Nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. Too much honey will make you sick. It'll raise the monosodium glucose levels in your blood to the point you'll become nauseated. No good. People who think with their emotions. My family is a combination of Israeli Jewish and Irish Catholic, which, as you may know, are the worst two races of people in the world. And I have, we have Jewish family who are unsaved, and we have Catholic family who are unsaved. I love my Jewish family, I love our Catholic family, and I want them to be saved. I thank God for Christians who understand and realize the prophetic purposes of God for Israel. But some of them say, we just have to love the Jews, they don't need to be saved. People like John Hagee actually teach that. No. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Jewish people need to be born again and accept Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. Too much honey. They have this infatuation with Israel and the Jews. Well, I thank God they recognize God's prophetic plan for Israel, but it's not about Jews. It's about the Messiah of the Jews. My mother, my Irish Catholic mother, she trusts in the statue of Mary instead of in the blood of Jesus for her eternal destiny. Does the blood of Christ cleanse from all sin, or do you atone in purgatory for your own? Is salvation by the new birth? Are we saved by grace through faith? Or are you saved by a sacramental ritual? Paul says if even an angel of God comes with another gospel, get away from them, let them be accursed. How many people here used to be Roman Catholic, but after you read the Bible, you converted to Christianity? Put your hand up. How many ex-Catholics? Just keep up for a moment. Look around, the rest of you. If you want to know what the Roman Catholic Church is, don't listen to Chuck Colson. Listen to ex-Catholics. They will all tell you what it is. It is not biblical Christianity. It's the whore of Babylon and Christian masquerade. And I don't say that to offend Catholics. I'm not out to offend anybody but the devil. I love Catholics. Therefore, I want them to know the truth. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. You're not going to have to atone in purgatory for your own. You have to repent and put your faith in Jesus. 
It's not about fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Don't live in that bondage. Come to the real way of salvation. Now, some people will say, you can't talk that way. You don't love people. You don't love Catholics. You offended them. If I didn't love people, I wouldn't care what they believed. Look at the woman at the well. Jesus loved her, but as soon as she began with a nonsense religion, you have that mountain, we have this mountain, before Jesus went any further in the conversation, he corrected her wrong doctrine. Lady, you don't know what you're talking about. Salvation comes from the Jews. The Syrophoenician woman, I can't give the children's bread to dogs. Was Jesus calling her little girl a dog? Actually, in Greek, it's demonic. It was like a puppy. No, what he was saying is, lady, I'd like to help you and your daughter, but your religion is not fit for human consumption. Mormonism is not fit for human consumption. Jehovah's Witness is not fit for human consumption. The emergent church is not fit for human consumption. It's dog food. Don't be a dog. You're not a dog. Don't eat like one. It's for dogs, not humans. Not for people made in the image and likeness of God. Now, I don't say that to offend. I say that because of what it says in Philippians 1.9. Let your love abound in all knowledge and real discernment. Biblically, unless you have knowledge of the word of God and unless you have discernment, you can't love. Oh, you can have emotional froth, airy, fairy, feel-good nonsense, stupidity. But you cannot have biblical love. Love requires truth and discernment, not the lack of it. Too much, honey. When you see people thinking with their emotions and making feelings the barometer of spirituality, look what it says about them. It's not good to eat much honey, nor is it glory to seek out one's own glory. God's book of psychology says where these people are really at is spiritual pride. They're seeking their own glory. That's where they're really at. That's where they're really coming from. They are seeking their own glory. They're not seeking the glory of God or the good of others. If you seek people's good, you tell them the truth. In love, but the truth. And today, if you're Jewish or if you're Catholic, I love you. And because I love you, I want you to know the truth. The truth will set you free. But let's continue. There could be no honey on the matzah. When Jesus went to the cross in my place and yours, there was no affection. We got the affection. Jesus got the nails. I'm not proud of it by any means. I was a cocaine dealer and a communist when I got saved. Not that I'm proud of it, but I'm proud of what Jesus did when he took my sin and rose from the dead to give me eternal life. Okay? I got the honey. My Messiah got the nails. For God so loved the world, he gave his son, his son got the nails. There was no honey on the matzah. There was no affection. The father turned his back on his son because he took our sin to give us his righteousness. So there was no honey and there was no leaven. There was, however, incense and there was, however, salt and there was oil. But very briefly, moving on, look at verse 12 of Leviticus 2. The grain of the first fruit you shall not put on the altar again. You could not sacrifice the grain of the first fruit. Understand what the first fruit is. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Why could the first fruit not be sacrificed again? 
This is what we read, Paul tells us. Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. On the first day of the week, the Sunday of Passover week, Hagmatzot, the high priest would go into the Kidron Valley, which was between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, Harazayatim. And when it was still dark, exactly at sunrise, but still dark, he'd wait for the first pin of light coming up on back of the Mount of Olives. And he would ceremonially harvest the first stock, stalk of grain coming out of the earth. At that very hour of the very day when he bought the first fruit, the high priest bought the first fruit sacrificially into the temple, is the very hour of the very day of the year when Jesus was raising from the dead, the first fruit of the resurrection. Okay? Once he dies and raises from the dead, he never dies again. Hence, the first fruit could not go on the altar again. Understand this. Peter says, Christ died once. Turn with me, please, very briefly to Hebrews chapter 7. We read the following in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. A high priest who does not need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices daily. Because this he did once and for all. These priests had a sacrifice day after day after day. Once the Messiah came and took our sin and rose from the dead, no more priests making daily sacrifice. But if you were a Catholic, you know about the holy, quote-unquote holy, sacrifice of the Mass. A priest does it again day after day. They say Jesus continues to die sacramentally in the Mass. Hebrews chapter 9 says this in verse 12. But he entered through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. If his death was sufficient once and for all, eternally, why do you need a mass for him to die again and again and again? Hebrews chapter 9, we read the following again in verse 26. But now, once at the consummation of the age, Christ has died and been a sacrifice. Verse 28, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. If something is perfected, by definition you can't improve it. If something is eternal, that's it. It goes on and on. We don't need a priest who does it again and again and again. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass is a fundamental rejection of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let no one tell you differently. That grain of the first fruit could not go back on the altar. He does not die again, sacramentally or otherwise. He is risen. Forget about a crucifix. He's no longer on the cross. Now we should get on the cross. Crucify the old nature. He's no longer on it. He's risen. We serve a risen Lord, not a corpse hanging on a cross. Completely contrary to the gospel. But finally, that grain had to have salt. Salt was the only preservative in the ancient world, and it is the only preservative today, basically, in food science, Practically, as far as I know, every preservative in modern food science is sodium-based. Sodium benzoate, whatever it is, they're salt-based. Salt preserves. 
Remember, it's Jesus. It's the Word who became flesh. This grain preserves. It's salty. This will preserve a Christian's walk with the Lord. It'll preserve a marriage. It'll preserve a family. It'll preserve a church. It'll preserve a society. It'll preserve a nation. But once a person or a marriage or a family or a society or a church or a movement of churches or a nation turns away from it, it's not going to preserve anything. The salt is good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot, Jesus tells us. You know, I've seen the growth of the Calvary Chapel movements going back to the hippie era when I got saved. And it's a frightening thought to me. You're not going to find the church more dead than the Methodists. At one time, the Methodists were where Calvary chapels are today. <laughs> if it can happen to them, if it can happen to the Mennonites, if it can happen to so many other churches and denominations throughout church history, we are not immune. It's the salt that preserves. It preserves. But finally, it came in two ways. Whole grain and crushed grain. The Word of God comes in two ways, whole grain and crushed grain. What's the difference? Crushed grain is the Word of God taught under the anointing of the Holy Spirit by somebody with the gift of teaching, somebody who can break it up and serve it to you. Not everybody can understand typology. Not everybody knows Greek and Hebrew. Some have the gift of teaching, some don't. That is crushed grain. But no Bible teaching, no Bible teacher, including this one, will ever replace the whole grain, the prayerful reading of the Word of God for yourself. <laughs> Out there on our table, you'll find a lot of crushed grain. All kinds of stuff. If you like this kind of Bible teaching, we'll be more than happy to relieve you of your filthy lucre. <laughs> Actually, none of the money goes to us, it goes to the ministry. But, crushed grain. Thank God for good Bible teaching. Thank God for good Bible teachers. Thank God for David Hawking. Thank God for Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Thank God for the people like Chuck Missler. Thank God for good Bible teaching. Thank God for good Bible teachers. Praise God for crushed grain. But the whole grain comes first. The prayerful and careful reading of the Word of God for yourself. We need the crushed grain. We need Bible teaching and Bible teachers. But you need the whole grain. You need to pray and read this for yourself. When you pray, you talk to God. When you read this under the anointing of His Spirit, He talks back. You've listened to me. Now, listen to Him. God bless. <laughs>